Kirsty. Hi. How are you? How's it going? Good. How are you? Good. Good. Um, Kirsty, thanks for joining us today. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, there's actually only um, three of us joining, not four, because our fourth team member had an emergency like health thing going on. Um, but uh, we have two other members with us. So if you guys want to introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm Noelle. <laughs> Hi. Hi, I'm Bridget. And this might seem like a weird question, but I noticed on your photos you sent that you have an insulin pump. Are you a type 1 diabetic? I am, yes. <laughs> Me too, I have the same pump. That's the only reason. I was like... Oh my God, that's so funny. Yes, I was actually also going to be like, my sugar might run low because I've been having a weird sugar day, so oh, you know no. what I mean. <laughs> so, so if I stop... There. Yeah, if I stop to drink Coke, I'll, I'll let you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have been there. I feel your pain. <laughs> um, um, so uh, before we get started, um, I just want to let you know that um, we're going we're gonna to rotate questions. And um, just like, I, I, I know you saw them beforehand, but as much as you can say about them, like, don't feel like you need to like fluff anything up. Um, but if, you know, if you have a lot to say about a certain question or a topic, then feel free to just, you know, go for it um and then um you know if we if we feel a need to like talk in between and like you know conversate with you we'll do that but um we'll we'll be turning on we'll, we'll be muting ourselves while you're talking until you know it, until we want to say something okay is the audio sound okay or do you like need me to put in headphones yes no that sounds great okay cool sounds yeah. good yeah sounds good and then is your cat joining too for the interview um. <laughs> One of them was on my lap, but he ran away, so maybe they'll oh. come back later. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, cool. So, uh, are we ready to get started? So, oh. Can you hear us okay? Yeah. Okay, cool. All right, so we already are recording, so I'm just going to start off with the first question. Um, so, Kirsty, uh, how has the current political climate been affecting your emotional well-being? What a loaded question. Yeah. Um, it's fluctuated a lot. I feel like it depends on what part of the year we're talking about. I think like a couple months ago, it was just like, as we were all sort of adapting to everything happening, um, just dread and like anxiety and just a complete feeling of helplessness. And like, I had no idea what to do. All the information of how to help and how to help communities that are outside your own. It was very overwhelming because everyone was posting things, but I was trying to be up to date. Um, but I think taking the time to work on my feelings and then work on like trying to be an activist and trying to be a good ally came after I could get my own shit in order. Sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to curse. <laughs> um, and it's been a balance of trying to do self-care and then trying to tackle all of the things that's going on in the world and reading the news. And it's just really hard for me to balance that. And then also my work life on top of that. So it feels like I'm just juggling a bunch of plates and I don't know which one to grab next. I totally feel that. hundred <laughs> yeah. percent. I completely understand. It's been like a very emotional roller coaster for me as well. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, it felt like it started even before everything happened and then this just kind of felt like it made it worse. So yeah, I get you. Yeah. Yeah. Cause when you also say political climate, I was like thinking the pandemic, but then I was also like Black Lives Matter, but then also like 
things going on yeah. across the globe now. So I'm like, which one are you talking about? I guess all of it. So all of it. Yeah. There's yeah. Like- yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, Noel, do you have a. Yes. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Sorry. Second question is, um, what was your experience starting out as a working artist? And was there a defining moment uh, when you realized that this could be more than just a side business for you? Um, yeah, so I went to art college. I went to School of Visual Arts in New York City. And I think it was part naivete and part self-confidence in my own artwork that I was like, of course I'll have an art career. That's what I'm doing. Like art is my life. Of course I will have a career in it. Um, and I never really considered a plan B, um, which is terrifying looking back on it. But also I think that's kind of what drove me. I don't know. It's a really complicated question. Um, because I look at a lot of people I graduated with who make really great art, but aren't able to pay their bills with their art. And it's not necessarily any fault of their own, but just like the stars did not align or like their work is just not like in trend right now, because illustration goes through a lot of trends when it comes to like media picking up on it. Um, And I think a lot of it was also luck with the fact that my imagery and the way that I choose to draw and the things I like to draw, other people want to buy it on products. And it's also a part that I do enjoy business in the sense that I feel like I have a bit of a knack for it that I never really knew was there until I started doing things like I was, I started putting things on Etsy in college just to get all these random experiments because I'm always creating something. If it wasn't for school, I was doing little side projects and then I would have like this stack of like handmade embroideries and be like, well, I can't keep these all on my desk. I'll open an Etsy shop. And then every time I made a sale, it was like addicting. It was like, yes, I love doing this. Like people bought it. I made the money. Like it was very exciting. So I was like, okay, this is, this is a fun thing. Maybe I'll um, consider this a path. And then you asked like what moment did it feel like this could really be more than a side thing was I think when I started going to craft fairs in person and I could see the person there with their stuff and I was like oh I'm already kind of doing this so that's the next step and then I actually had a teacher who connected me with someone who was who was doing something like that Kay Blagved is her name and my teacher set up the connection and I emailed her and she gave me some insight And I was like, oh, this is like a real person. I'm having a conversation with her. This isn't some random person. This is who is behind the virtual storefront. Um, And then I had an opportunity to be her assistant a few months after graduation. And that was what really helped me kind of see like, oh, okay. Like the real world experience you get through learning like as an apprenticeship or an assistant is a lot more valuable than learning in a classroom. Like that hands-on experience of being her intern or assistant and just casually getting to ask her questions as we worked. It wasn't even like she was teaching me things. I just picked it up as we did. That was a really big turning point. And I was kind of like, oh, I didn't know half this stuff that we're doing, but she taught me. And that's how it kind of, I feel like gave me the next level up. Um, So, I know like, I, you know, I, I have a Etsy shop, but like on a, a, like a way smaller scale. But when you, men- when you mentioned that, like, you know, showing up in person, like having those like vendor shows and stuff um, and having people like come up to you, like I had that experience, like at my last show where somebody came up to me, like it was at, it was like last summer at a vendor um, 
uh, vendor setup and somebody came up to my tent and they're like, oh, you were the last person on my list. Like, you know, I, I had to make sure, like, I saw you again because I was at that show like a year before and they bought something from me. That's so, cool. so them coming up to me like for the next year and remembering me, I was like, oh my God, like you came for me? Like, oh my God, like that's awesome. So no, that's, that feeling is just really cool. And, you know, obviously making sales and stuff too. So um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's the best when like people come up to you and then they like look at the table and they're like, oh, oh, I follow you on Instagram. I'm already, I'm already like, I have like three of your shirts at home. And I'm like, oh, that's so great. Like, that's, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. This is like a little bit of a random question. Um, do you ever display an artist in Fleas in like Brooklyn or in Soho? No, I've been to those um, and I've done other market events, but not the Artists and Fleas ones, just because I think they are a little bit more um, upscale and expensive. I'm like very like DIY, or at least when I did do markets, like last year and the year before, I was more on like a DIY level and that mm -hmm. Soho audience is slightly different than like the alternative gothy witchy stuff I offer. Yeah. Um, but they are cool, cool markets. Cool. I'm just, I, I work in Manhattan, so I'm always like in that area. Cool, yeah. Everything. So um, our next question is, how has COVID affected your business and what have you done to adapt? So it was really scary in the beginning because my print shop, which is for those people um, who don't know, I hand print a lot of my own stuff in the print shop, or at least I did because my whole business is I do like t-shirts and patches and other um, apparel and things that can be screen printed and my print shop closed down and they had no idea when they were going to open up because it's attached to a school and the school was closing and so then you just can't use the print shop at all. Um, so it was really terrifying to lose that like main source of how I make my products but it was also kind of the kick in the butt that I needed to do outsourcing and expand because I don't like to relinquish control. I like to make everything myself because I'm a control freak. So it kind of forced me to do what I've been wanting to do, which is expand and have manufacturers or like outsource to other people like my friend has been selling for me. Um, and that way I can focus on the things that I really do like the most. Like I do like selling things and stuff, but I just, I can't do it continuously. So I get to focus on more of the designing and then it can be made elsewhere. I don't have to worry about it. Um, so <clears throat> it was actually kind of beneficial in that sense, but it was terrifying to make that transition because I was like, oh my God, I have to lay out more money. I have to do more of this because that's also what I like about making things myself is I don't necessarily have to lay out the money for the labor. It's just my time. Um, but I'm starting to realize that time is also very important and now I have time to put it elsewhere. Um, but yeah, in the beginning, I, I would be terrified and then the next day I would be like super calm and I would feel like I got this, it's okay. Like part of that like naive, but also like self-confidence I mentioned earlier. Like I was like, it's okay, I'm adaptable, I can do this. And then the next day I would like spiral again and be like my whole business is gonna fall apart. Um, but I was lucky that I was able to get a lo one of those um, disaster loans or whatever, which is kind of helping me. It was a good cushion and also like it was what I needed to put money into the new products that I couldn't make myself. Um, so it's it's starting to feel okay again. I haven't gotten my print shop back. I think they're closed for the rest of 2020, but I am starting to be a little bit more comfortable with um with the transition. Yeah, and uh I don't like by by giving your work to the manufacturers to do has it 
has it taken, has it given you more time to focus on you? Like, because you're not making everything, like you don't have to do, like do everything yourself. Yes, which has been really nice. I actually um, was telling my wife the last week that I finished drawing uh, the new designs or whatever, and then I emailed them to the people and I'm waiting for samples. And I was like, Maria, I suddenly have all this free time because I don't have to print 70 t-shirts in a row and I don't have to like print all these things. Like I had to just wait for the sample to come and then I'll photograph it. Like, what do I do now? Like, do I start on Christmas stuff? Like <laughs> it's July. Um, but yeah, it's been nice. Um, I feel like I am not too bad with time management. I can be a bit of a workaholic, but because my wife works, um, she's also been working from home now. So I kind of like whenever she works is like when I work. So it's good to have someone who has like a somewhat normal schedule. So I don't overwork because I do have a tendency to do that. But, um, yeah, I definitely have more time now. And I'm like, what do I do with it? It's exciting. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Um, oh, and also the friend that you said was making bags and stuff for you, is that Kate? Yeah. Okay, yeah. I Honestly, I've been wondering when you guys were going to collab because, I mean, it, it makes sense, you know? Like, she, yeah. she has certain um, skills and you do. Yeah, so I thought that was awesome. Yeah, she's actually making masks for me this week. So. Oh, that's, okay, that's really cool. Nice. Um, so, all right, next question. Um, your art has been heavily influenced by the occult mythologies and fairy tales. What brings you to these themes and how do you incorporate them into your work? So, I think that it always feels, I feel like I stumbled into like witchcraft stuff randomly in college, but I know it wasn't random. I just can't really remember what made me pick up like the first book. But I think I've always had interest in fantasy and stuff because I, I grew up alongside Harry Potter. I grew up literally was the same age when the books came out. And then when the movies came out, I was the same age as the actors. So I grew up with this like constant real life magic throughout my childhood and teen years. And I've, it's just always been with me. And I always loved the idea of witches and witchcraft. And so then eventually in college, I started looking into more of the historical things and like the actual spirituality behind it. And I feel like it's also very related to like mythology blends very um, naturally into witchcraft and stuff when you look into the gods and goddesses and archetypes and stuff like that. So I just, I just love all that stuff in general and I'm gonna credit it to Harry Potter as being part of the root. Um, but I think I just like, I like fairy tales and mythology because everything is a little bit more simple, like bad things still happen, but there's mostly an explanation for it or there's a moral to the story or there's something to be learned and real life is a lot more tones of gray than you don't get a real answer like you do in stories. And it's also just nice to like imagine a world where anything can happen. Like you want to draw a siren, like who's like a woman with her boobies out and she's got wings and like she decapitates men. Like that's awesome. Like, yeah, break all the rules. Like, so I think a lot of us can relate to needing a break from reality that way <laughs> um no I think I think all like because in my in my work too like I've brought in like I think I think bringing in stories like it it creates a really good visual for you to then go off of so I yeah. think it's easier to like create that type of work because you have you know it's it's still like in your mind but it's also stemming from you know like things that you're reading and otherwise yeah, yeah. I think 
I think it is so cool the just like the playing that you can do with it and, and how it shows up differently in people's minds and how it comes out differently in their artwork. And like there was one, um, not to go on too long, but um, I think it was, was it Dr. Seuss? Yeah, it was Dr. Seuss. He has like the midnight. What, I can't remember if it was you that sent it to me, Amanda. It was like the midnight series or something, but he's got this whole other collection of artwork that's like super dark but like really cool. And so I'll, maybe I'll try and find that like and send it to you, but just, I don't know. I think it it's sounds really cool. interesting. I'd like to look that up. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Dr. Seuss? What? Dr. Seuss. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I can't remember what they're called. They're called like the midnight something, the midnight, I don't know, but yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. All right. Do you still read like fantasy books like now, or was that something that you specifically did like in childhood? Um, I do I think I watch more fantasy than I read um, just because I'm it's easier to watch TV than it is to read books because <laughs> I can also multitask um, <laughs> and I've, I've also been trying to break up the um, reading books about fantasy and trying to do like real world like uh, what is it like I'm like reading a bunch of like anti-racist books and all this stuff it's like <laughs> like real life stuff yeah. and I'm like yeah. Okay, but then let me also like put some fun things in between. Uh, like I just I yeah. loved Red, White, and Royal Blue, which is like a gay romance novel, and that was like so much fun. And it wasn't fantasy, but it also kind of was because like no way would that ever happen in real life. Um, so it's not fantasy in that aspect, but that was a, a good fun book. I'm trying to read a lot more gay romance novels um, as opposed awesome. to anime, I think recently, just because they're very heartwarming and nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Well, and Bridget, I think Bridget asked because uh, about the fantasy stuff because she, well, Bridget, you read a lot of fantasy and she's a, she's I a, do. yeah, and she's a, <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. And um, speaking of fairy tales, like, I know you, they don't read as much, but there's this one YA fa um, fantasy book I just read like last year and it's like fairy tale esque. It's called The Hazelwood and this woman oh. like, much, like wrote her own like fairy tales and it's like so cool and like it goes into, it was just, I read that one. Um, I liked it, and I, I've been, ugh, now I wish I'm blanking on the things I did read, because I did read The Hazelwood, I read something else, I read Spinning Silver, or Naomi Noah. Oh, yeah, yeah, I haven't read that one yet, but it's on my list. Both of her books were, I read two of, is it Naomi's? No, Naomi I, Novak? Is, yeah, Novak okay. I read two of her yeah. books, and they're really atmospheric and really beautiful, but for, this has been happening with me lately, where, like, I'll like three-fourths of the book like the first three quarters of it and then I get to the last quarter and I'm like I don't know if this is worth finishing I don't know what it is because it's like I like it but like something's going to maybe it's too slow and I'm just like I read this other book called The Glass Woman which is not really fantasy it's more historical it's like in like 1600s Iceland and also I think because it was I started reading it right as quarantine hit or I was audiobooking it and then they're basically in isolation because it's 1600s Iceland and they can't like leave their house because it's like, like winter. And so I kind of gave up. Yeah, so I like gave up on that book because I was like, this is too real. I got to put this it's off. It's too real. <laughs> like you need escapism. That was just hitting too close to home. <laughs> exactly. It was not a great escapist book, but it was also really beautifully written and atmospheric. And I was like, I like this, but like, I think I'm a little bit ruined by like all the fast paced books that happen. And yeah. I really hate myself about that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. Um, okay. So next question is, uh, in what way have you tried to give back while using your business as a platform? Um, sorry, I'm just organizing my thoughts. So yeah. I have been, I usually 
have a charity design somewhere in my shop that's like up for a little bit and then I'll make something new or I kind of switch them out. I think one of my first charity designs was like this feminism means equality shirt and had like hands holding and flowers and like it was like it, it was a design that I made really early on um, and I've been trying to do more things in relation to specific events like I did a this like cat and like eating snakes and it said like new Nazis not welcome and that was indirect uh, it was a direct reaction to the Charlottesville Virginia Nazi rallies that happened in like 2017 um, so occasionally I do make things in response to certain events and then whatever I sell it on like a hundred percent of the profits or whatever goes to a charity that's related to the design somehow so um, I try and do that. I try and do at least one new design per year, I guess, maybe, or, or a few times, um, or I bring back an old one and kind of switch it out. Um, but without my print shop, I would usually do screen printed stuff, but that was also a challenge that I, I can't screen print. So like, oh my God, what am I gonna make that people want? So I did, I just did a batch of stickers that I released. Um, one goes to, I can't remember the organizations, but I made this design that was about like looking through new at through different perspectives. It's like a cat's face with like a moth over its face, but the eyes are the cat's eyes on the moth wings. So it isn't like an overtly political thing, like the neo-Nazis not welcome kind of thing, but it was kind of more of a subtle way to, I wanted to do something that I knew people would want to buy. And those are symbols that are like very popular with my audience, but at the same time, it also was showing like, some of the symbolist sorry some of the um ideas i was trying to come across like looking through different perspectives and stuff like that um and then also if i'm not making designs that are like supposed to go towards charity my friends and i i've done two charity events now over the past like four years and last year we put together this art market and we had a big charity fundraising event and we were able to get a lot of donations from other artists and we could like do raffles and stuff like that and we were able to raise like a bunch of money for this organization because we knew a bunch of people would have been there anyway shopping at all these small businesses so like might as well throw in another thing to like that we knew people would show up for that's really cool and like very inspiring thanks yeah it's a lot it sounds like a lot of work yeah event planning was a, a fun um like weird thing I decided to do last year again. Yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> so our next question is, um, in what ways do you think the New York City art and culture scene can do a better job of diversifying? So the charity event I mentioned um, that we did last year was kind of in direct response to the fact that there were for lack of a better term, not a lot of markets that we felt welcome at anymore or not welcome at, we just felt like they didn't have the interests of the artists in mind. And um, so we decided to make a market that was, the goal was that it was to be a community space. It was a very welcoming community space. That was our like first thing is we wanted to make sure everyone felt welcome because there, we didn't feel like there was something like that, specifically in the, the dark arts alternative, which you got seen, like, which is my thing. Um, so we made this event and I learned a lot from it. It is, 
going through the expenses and like looking at like what you need. Sorry, this is, I'm going all rambly now, but what one thing we really wanted to do was make sure that like, we didn't really, I'm sorry, can you cut out this beginning part and I can start over? Okay. Can you cut out anything you'd like. <laughs> okay, thank you. I'm going to start this question over. You're fine, Chrissy, you're fine. It's like, honestly, like we just appreciate you doing this. So like, okay, thank whatever, you. Yeah, I know this is a lot of talking too. Like these are intricate, intricate, intricate. You see, I need, I can't even talk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and no, we're kind of like jumping from topic to topic. So sometimes it's like, you need a minute to just be like, okay, new question. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I'm like, I have 50 things on my mind at once. Um, yeah. Yeah. Understandable. Okay. So that charity event I mentioned, um, we had a lot of things in mind for it and we learned a lot of things doing it. Um, we created this event because we felt there was not a very welcoming event currently happening. Not to say that it wasn't happening in other areas, but for this specific, specific goth art, which you see in New York City, um, we felt there was a lacking of a very welcoming environment in art market. So a few of my friends and I teamed up and we decided we were gonna host our own market. And it was a lot of work, but we learned a lot. And something that was important to us was that in other markets, when they became popular, people would start, the hosts would charge a lot and a lot for the tables in order to get your spot at it. And it wasn't like the venue was getting more expensive. Like, yes, the event was getting popular, but when you increase the table prices, like times 10 in the span of a year, you're shutting out a lot of small businesses that can't afford to make that because they also probably have travel expenses if they're not from in the city and or you're cutting severely on their profit margins just so they can feel like they're part of this event but it's like it's a lot of goddamn work to prepare for this and if the only reason you're increasing the table um the table cost is to line your own pockets you're not serving these artists anymore you're not creating a community space you're blocking out all these people who can't afford to be there and also like the door tickets like we want we had sliding scale for ours because we wanted we had to do door tickets in order to like help us cover the space of the renting thing but we also realized that five dollars might be too much for people who are there to buy from the small artists so we had like a little sliding scale thing um and our main goal was just to be as inclusive as possible and i think making sure that was our main goal that was like the number one thing in our list we always came back to that and a lot of other markets might not have that be the number one thing on their list so it's easy to forget about it because it is a lot of a lot of work and a lot of stress to create an event um but i think that going forward anyone making events they need to say what their stance is and they need to say what their values are because we're living in a political climate and a modern world where you don't know if the dude you're supporting maybe like listens to weird neo-nazi music because he's also like in the goth scene and sometimes that stuff blends or like he's or you know someone doesn't care about trans people like you don't want to support them if you're like in the lgbt community and so i feel like it is really important to be declare spaces as a very safe space and be like we are here we are trying our best to like welcome everybody and you probably will mess up but like it's better to speak about it than to not speak out about it um and just keep digging for people like the artists the makers are out there you just might have to like go deep and creep into instagram until you find them but like that's another thing too like people need to be sharing other creators they like that are from different diverse backgrounds and if you have a platform you should be sharing those people because also like we're all artists 
first and then business people most of the time or we're artists trying to make a living off of our thing off of our creative endeavors and community is more important than competition like we should be uplifting each other we shouldn't be trying to like stamp on each other's like fingers and toes just to like make a buck because when we support and lift each other up that's what makes it nice like that's that's what it's really about and so sorry there's a big thunderstorm oh my god that was thunder. yeah I, I, I can hear it here too um but i thought you made a really good point especially like in the city where they're like marking up prices and you said like people have to travel especially like if you think of new york even like 10 years ago the rate of gentrification has been happening so rapidly. Sometimes in order to reach these diverse communities, like these artists are traveling from much further out. Totally. In South Jersey City, and honestly where I am in Jersey City is like one of the few like black communities left in Jersey City because it's been like so rapidly gentrified that they've pushed these people outside of like the rest of the city. And so like, if there's any artists here, like they might not have easy access or like, or they're spending a lot of money to like take their products. And sometimes you can't just like take the subway with all of your artwork because you have like these like huge setups. So you need to drive and that's like $30 in tolls one way. And like, so yeah, that was a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, actually, Chrissy, how do you, how do you transport all your stuff to shows? Cars, I have to take Ubers usually. I mean, I yeah. have, I mean, I honestly am not doing markets for like a long time, oh, like, yeah. even before COVID, honestly, like I did CatCon all the way in LA, like I fucking flew to oh. LA for CatCon. Wow. <laughs> and like, it was fun, it was good, it was profitable, but also like, it's a big fucking schlep. It's really exhausting because not only, I mean, you know, you have to make the things, then you have to be at your booth. And luckily my wife has no problem sitting with me. So if I need a bathroom break, I can go. But a lot of people don't have that partner or that person maybe can't travel with them. So they have to do it all by themselves. It's exhausting. And then you have to talk to people on top of being sleep deprived. You have to be customer service face for like eight hours straight. Like uh -huh. it's exhausting. And the hordes of people are not always kind. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Um, yeah, so I'm kind of done with shows. I'm, I'm focusing on not doing in-person events even before covid i'm focusing on like expanding what i'm actually doing because i'm kind of going into like garment manufacturing next so oh, cool. that's awesome yeah thanks yeah, cool. that's the plan i hope i can do it yeah no <laughs> i i definitely believe you can like i actually i i bought like when you put out um the, the um feminism means equality yeah like, i bought one of your patches so like i don't know yeah um I, I still need to put it on my jacket, but I have it. So, um, uh, what was I going to say? Um, oh, well, I'll just get into the next question. Um, sure. So, all right, changing topics a little bit. Um, so, what was your experience coming out to your friends and family? And do you have any advice for individuals that are hesitant or scared to come out? So, I had a pretty non-traumatic coming out, I think, in the sense that it was more traumatic for me to come to terms with it within myself. And I feel like I'm still coming to terms with it in some ways. Um, whereas like the only person I really had to tell was my mom because my dad had passed away already. Um, but I like had already started dating um, my girlfriend who's now my wife. And I just like told my mom, I was like, cause I had only dated men before. And I was like, Hey mom, um, I just want to let you know, like, I'm dating a girl now. And she was like, 
yeah, I like, kind of figured. I was like waiting for this to happen. <laughs> she was like, I don't know, you just kept like bringing boys home. And I was like, okay, like, I didn't like, so like, and I think some people have similar stories where like moms know, dads don't know, but like moms know deep down. Um, my mom, yes. <laughs> yeah. It's, I don't know, it's something we give off that mothers have good gaydar. I don't know. But, <laughs> but my mom knew. And like, I think telling my grandma, my one grandma, she was like, oh, that's fine. And she's very like meek. And so that wasn't a big deal. And then I told my other grandma, who I call her Bestimore, which is grandmother in Norwegian. She's from my Norwegian side. And she's very straight. She's been married three times. Um, and so I told her and she was just, she basically said, oh, that's wonderful. But how do you, she was very confused about how you can have a relationship without a man because this woman's been married three times and she had, a, and she was like, I just want you to have a good life where, you know, I was married three times and you should be so lucky. And I was like, I'm good. Thank you. So it was, it was, there are more funny stories I have, thankfully, where I, I'm very lucky. I know a lot of people don't have stories like that. Um, but I think also I've, my journey has been from, I thought I was bisexual. I thought I was queer and I'm coming to terms with the fact that I think, not that I think, I know I'm a lesbian. I identify as a lesbian, but like it was such a journey to get there because heteronormativity is so ingrained in us and that even if you do feel attractive to men or if you think you're, oh, but like I did date men for a long time. Like, no, like if dating a, a man or men in your past does not define anything, like also the attraction you feel towards a certain sex doesn't always mean that you're like actually attracted to them in the sense that you want to pursue a relationship. And I think um, I recommend anybody who feels similar to look up the master doc of Am I a Lesbian? Because it was actually a really good checklist that made me feel like, oh, I feel a lot that like, yes, I'm a lesbian. This helped me like validate it that like, just because I dated men in the past or whatever, it doesn't mean that, you know, it's, it's not, doesn't have to be part of my story. Right. And I, and I feel like, you know, it's, it's hard to identify yourself in any sort of way because there is such a sliding scale of every, you know, like me, I like, I'm bisexual, but it's like, the scale to which, like you said, like that you actually pursue people romantically or not, or is you know, or sexually or not, or so there's always like a little bit, I think, a difficulty of getting there. But I think it's cool that you, you know, you've come, you've come to this place where you're like accepting that and knowing that about yourself and and valuing it. You know, I think that in the end, at the end of the day, it just matters like how you feel and 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 how you choose to express yourself based on that. So totally, and like sexuality yeah. is fluid, and like you, like there's no reason to get mad at someone because they're like oh, I think I'm gay. And then if they say two years later, no, actually I do think I'm bisexual. Like, because everybody's figuring out all the time. And if someone does change or someone says, oh yeah, I thought I was straight. And then they're 45 and they're like, no, actually I am gay. Like, cause it's yeah. really fucking hard. You don't know what that person's going through. You don't know what like weird society ideas they've had put in their heads about themselves because I, that's what I feel like I'm unwrapping a lot of like now and I'm like late twenties. Um, I feel like I'm late to the party compared to a lot of people, but like, <laughs> you know, everybody, if they change their identification or whatever, like, just be happy that they're able to go on that journey, because a lot of people in the world can't. Yeah, yeah. and actually, you know, like, again, being late to the party, it, it's like, I don't know, it's all, it's all based on, like, 
your your feelings and that connection with that person too and like I don't yeah. know Noel you know Noel has been like one of my good friends for a long time and when we when we met she was very open about herself um which made me then feel like open to like come out like as bisexual and it, it's not something that I've like blasted across you know blasted across the internet or you know in my in my life but it's just something that like when you have that community that you feel supported in that you're like okay like I can say this and I won't be I won't be judged or I won't be you know like I can just be me and who cares about like if I like boys or girls or whoever <laughs> yeah for sure yeah. Like, or if it fits into society's boxes yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I sorry no, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just gonna say, and yeah, like seeing other people like live their life on social media, like happy and out, like is one of the best things for modern gay people. I think people are like, oh, oh, yeah, I'm not a weirdo, I'm not a freak. Like there's a bunch of people living their lives happy. And I think the more we normalize it, the more um, it's easy for future generations to like accept it faster and like become who they are even faster than like our generation. Totally. Definitely. 100%. Cool. Um, so next question is, um, what does being an ally mean to you? And what would you like to see from allies beyond social media? Um, I think being an ally means you're a listener. Um, I think it's really important for allies just to listen to the, the communities they're trying to support. You don't want to just declare yourself an ally and then be like, that's it. I'm doing a good job because I accept you being here in the room with me. Um, cause I feel like I've had that happen before where it's like, no, actually you said this homophobic thing or something that made me feel uncomfortable. And it's like, but I'm an ally. It's like, no, I get to say, if you're an ally, you don't get to say it. Um, and I feel like I've heard other people say that too. It's like, yeah, it's the people in the community who get to call you an ally. It's not something you get to call yourself. So like, make sure you're listening to those people and actually giving help in the way that they think is helpful as opposed to like what you, if you are the ally, don't give help just to make yourself feel better. Cause that's not actually helpful. Give like, if you're helping, but no one actually needs it, then like, that's not helping. So make sure that you're helping in ways that people actually say, that's what you need to show up for. Does that make sense? Oh, definitely. And I think like, um, especially in like current times when like everyone, especially in social media, there's a lot of like social media activism where people are like, I'm an ally, but it's like, okay, but what are you doing to be an ally? Yeah. And not just something you get to declare one day because you feel like it and then you just go on and live your life and like, you might like be problematic in your life, you know? So it's, exactly. it's really important for people to like know that distinction. Yeah. And this is actually a question that we used um, for the last interview that we had um for um Justin Jeffires and he so when we asked him he he had an interesting take and said like you know we, we asked him about the Black Lives Matter movement um and how like with all of this happening like there are several people out like putting Black Lives Matter signs on their you know on their lawns and whatever and like there was you know there have been like several um there's a podcast I listened to my favorite murder like where one yeah. of yeah one of them tweeted uh like read retweeted someone and said like you know I'm I'm an ally like or you know like said something to the effect of like calling herself an ally and then that person responded back like we decide if you're an ally and so yeah. and Justin in in his interview was like you know I mean from his take he was like if if I see you out um like at rallies if I see you like you know um supporting those people in those in those communities like 
I'll consider you one, but like, you know, and so he's like, in that case, like you can, can you like, you, you can give yourself that title, but it's just interesting, you know, to, to hear to people like different people's takes on it. Yeah. I just, I feel like, no, I, I totally get that. I I'm coming from the specific experience where I feel like I've had someone yeah. be like, but I'm an ally. And I'm like, but I'm telling you this thing you did made me uncomfortable and it wasn't an ally move. So you can't really call yourself an ally if you're not accepting the criticism that I'm giving you. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's all about being willing to like, look at your own, like even unconscious biases, you know, like look at yeah. yourself and, and know that you're, and then tying that to action, you know, and not just being, you know, stagnant yeah. with it. Yeah. Exactly. Kind of equated to like during Pride Month when all of the businesses in the city are like posting like their rainbow flags and it's like, okay, that's great. But then your policies are still like yeah. homophobic or anti-trans or like something. And what are you doing? And your corporate, you know, it's like, you can't just like post a rainbow flag because it's June and expect everyone to be like, woo. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing with like Black History Month. Like it's not just. Yeah, exactly. Month, it should be, you know, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. So our last question before the bonus is, um, is there anything else you'd like to share with the world about your story or your experience? Um... I honestly didn't give this question a lot of thought. I was just like, I'll think of something on the spot <laughs> because something would come up. But the only thing I can really think of is like, um, I'm a type one diabetic and it's something that is new to me. I, I was diagnosed like three years ago. Um, so it's, it's relatively new. Um, it's changed a lot of how I think of my body because now I'm, technically disabled and I'm still coming to terms with that. I can't do a lot of things that other people can. Like I went on, <laughs> I've been hiking multiple times. I, I'm not a big hiker, but I went to like Iceland once uh, two years ago and I had just been diagnosed and I went hiking and I was like, my sugar was really high. So thankfully when I dropped a hundred points, I was like normal and in range. And I was like, whew, that could have been bad, but like, whoo, look at me, I'm fine. And then I went to Norway and I did a hike and I had like a near-death experience where my blood sugar got so low at the top of the mountain that someone had to walk back down and come back up with an ETV to take me down. And like, that was the real first time that I'm like, oh, it's not just a fun numbers game I'm playing. It like actually affects me. Um, Cause I, I have the, the Dexcom reader on my phone. So it gives me a live update of my blood sugar. So half the time it feels like a phone game because I'm just like, keep it in range, keep it in range. And then when I feel the physical, um, actual sensations of like being low or being too high, it's like, it brings me back into, oh, this is a real thing that's affecting my body. And I recently watched The Babysitter's Club on Netflix. And uh, it's a very wholesome, cute show. It's very good if you're like, I'm depressing quarantine and you like need to pick me up. But there's a girl who's a type one diabetic in that show. And that's like part of her storyline. Um, and she had like just been recently diagnosed and was like talking about like bringing up her blood sugar when she was low. And like the whole part of the storyline was that they thought she might not be responsible enough to take care of the children. And um, some of the parents like found out. And then it was, there was this one mom who was like, no, I've actually, I'm an endocrinologist and I saw her treat her symptoms and she's actually very responsible and I think she's more on top of it. It was like very heartwarming, like, and then they all had confidence in her. And like, 
it didn't hit me when I first watched it, but I keep thinking about it now weeks and weeks after watching it. And I was like, this is what people mean when they say like representation matters. Like it felt like that was the first time I ever encountered that disability on like a mainstream media thing besides on an episode of Hannibal when some guy made like a mushroom garden out of the comatose diabetic people. I don't know if anybody watches Hannibal, but he like induced high blood sugar and then like made them a mushroom garden. It was so weird. But besides that, that was like really the only time I had seen someone with diabetes like displayed on a mainstream TV show and I keep coming back to it. And so I think that's also what's becoming chronically ill or disabled is really opening my eyes to because you know we have a lot of like gay people starting to be more in mainstream we have them in tv shows and it's like yeah like every community every person deserves to be highlighted somewhere in mainstream culture and like we just have to keep working to it's it's not super hard to include these people like just we have to get better writers for stories and things like tv shows and like you know you just have to open the door and the people will come um, and I think it's really important to show that. That's so true. Like, when I saw your pod in the pictures, I was like, a type 1 diabetic? This is amazing. Because, like, the only other type 1 diabetic I know is my mom. Oh, and, really? Like, yeah. Like, I've never, like, really, I mean, besides, like, be going to my endocrinologist's office, like, yeah. I've never met, like, a type 1 diabetic. And one day, it was, like, in an Uber, like, a month ago, and um, I was talking to the Uber driver about how this was my first time out of my apartment in like four months because I'm immunocompromised and it's like really scary to go outside. And he was like, oh yeah, me too. I'm a type of diabetic. And I was like, what? And it was just like this amazing like connecting moment between him and I where we're like, oh my God, you feel it too. And it's like, especially because like diabetes is one of those things where it's like, it's at the forefront of your mind all the time because you feel like, okay, I want to eat this orange. Like, how is this orange going to affect me? Do I have enough insulin to take to eat this orange? Oh, I want to go on a walk did I eat something beforehand or I want to exercise? But wait, I took insulin two hours ago. Can I even exercise right now? So it's like, it's always just like a constant battle. No, totally. And do you want to hear something really fucked up from um, when I got diagnosed? I, um, I luckily was like, I didn't like, uh, I didn't faint and then like have to go to the hospital or anything. I did like a routine blood check and my doctor was like, oh, you're kind of high. Like maybe you're pre-diabetic. Let's monitor it. Um, so then in those few months, I started showing the symptoms a lot more. I was peeing a lot and then I lost a, like mm -hmm. a bunch of weight and I got really skinny mm -hmm. and I had multiple people be like, oh my God, you look so good. How'd you lose all that weight? You look amazing. I was like, I don't know. I just like stopped eating like so much dairy and I was like, <laughs> I was, like basking it because I was like, yeah, I look so good. I can fit my own pants. And then when my doctor's like, no, your body's literally dying. You're eating yourself, like, because you're diabetic. And I was like, that's so fucked up. Everybody thought I was beautiful and healthy just because I got skinny. And instead, mm -hmm. it's literally like my body is wasting away and everybody was complimenting me on how beautiful I looked. And I was just like, that's so fucked up. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, yeah. so I think it's, also that has, so yeah. Yeah. So that was really fucked up and I that sticks with me a lot and um I feel like I've been going through a lot of like body image changes especially because I gained a lot of weight being home in quarantine and like you know because we're all just like eating comfort food yeah. and, and not exercise and also insulin will make you gain weight being yeah. on insulin so. yeah so yeah lots of body changes and body feelings um and I always go back to when I was diagnosed and I think a lot about that and um 
Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard too. Cause like you have like the pod stuck in you and then you have the Dexcom stuck in you. And then like when I'm like wearing my pod, I have cyborg. Cause I'm like this little machine that's stuck into my arm is what, it's the only thing keeping me alive. Like, yeah. 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 Totally. It's like hard. And like, and then people also don't understand like what it's like to be a diabetic and like you're going through those ups and downs and it's really hard. And you're like, okay, well, this five minutes I'm fine, but the next five minutes I'm going to be like knocked out because my blood sugar is 65. Yeah. 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 Before, before this, uh, before you got on, Kirsty, Bridget was like, so I saw Kirsty's photo. <laughs> you think it'd be weird if I asked her? Because I saw her and I'm like, I have a pod and I'm like, I don't care. I was like, I gotta ask her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, last question, bonus question, I should say. Um, you and your and your recent or you and your partner uh, recently just got married. Despite COVID, what did you both do to make your wedding day still special? So we were supposed to have a uh, a, a wedding, like physically outside, and like have like a hundred people or whatever. But obviously, we couldn't do that because it was like right in the middle of it. It was supposed to be May thirtieth. Um, so instead we did a little zoom conference and we, uh, yeah, just had like the immediate, like 15 people that were important to us, friends and family come on and we dressed in like some fun outfits. We didn't wear our actual wedding outfits cause we're saving that for like when we can have the ceremony. So we wore some like fun run through costumes and, um, we just kind of exchanged vows and then we got an ice cream cake and we cut the cake and, um, then we had a little photo shoot. So that, that was what we did to sort of celebrate it. And it was a very bittersweet day because we were glad that we did something, but it was also like, we're supposed to be like actually in front of all these people. And I, it was very emotional in that sense where it was like, wow, this pandemic is really like, we can't see friends and family for like, who knows how long everything has to be through a screen for so long. Um, so it was kind of bittersweet, but we are legally married. Um, we just will have a reception when all of this pandemic bullshit is over. <laughs> Um, and, uh, what was the venue again? I know it was in Geneseo. The Wadsworth Homestead? Yeah. What's the story behind that? Isn't it like a, something witchy? Oh, no, not really. It's just, um, it's, it's just a very old historic house. Yeah, no, it's, um, it just has like really beautiful, like Victorian-esque, uh, old furniture and it's super beautiful. And the people who run the homestead were like, elementary school friends with my dad so there's like that family aspect to it um wow. so yeah so like we, we kind of are like distant family friends with them and they're just like the sweetest family and they're very accommodating like even if we didn't know them they would be giving like 110 percent because they're just very sweet and this house has been in their family since it was built like the whole town of Geneseo is like kind of built by this one guy's family Will Wadsworth so there's a lot of like great historical stuff and we love like old historical houses. So. I should I should tell my husband about that because he works in Geneseo at uh, a oh, really? Yeah, at at a, um, at a PT cl- clinic out there. So when I told him initially like when I was going to go with Mithra as her yeah. date, I was like, yeah, the wedding's in Geneseo. Like, you know, I can drive there and and he's like, "Wait, where?" Like cuz I mean, it's not a huge place and it's a lot of like I mean, it's like it's college town or like, you know, there's like a lot of farmers out there and like, you know, you know, uh, yeah. So <laughs> Wadsworth. Okay. I'm going to yeah. ask him if he knows the Wadsworth family. They're very involved in like local 
not even just politics, just like local activities. Like his wife does, I think, events for the town. So she organized like an art walk and stuff where they had all on Main Street, like art in the windows. You could go and walk and see all these different like local artists. It's like very cute, small town stuff That's like that. Cute. Yeah. yeah. Very sweet. That's awesome. Cool. Um, well, Kirsty, I just want to say like, thank you so much for doing this. Again, like it, it feels kind of weird to like, ask people like hey you know you're you're in this in this like specific group like share your story so i'm you know it's it's like if if people aren't comfortable with it like we get it but you know just the fact like when i sent you a message i'm like oh my god okay i hope i'm not being weird like i just want to like you know i hope she says okay but like we'll see <laughs> with your work and stuff too so like i just really i appreciate you doing this Oh, no problem. I was, I was, part of me was kind of like, I should have done the written thing because I'm so bad at doing a video. No. But then, like, no, 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 it's okay. Like, you were committed to the video, so we're going to do it. And like, it wasn't, it wasn't that scary. I just, um. And we're expert editors, so we will edit everything. Okay, cool. Can I see it before you post it? Is that weird? No, yeah, yeah, we can definitely yeah, share it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I have no idea what I just said in the past hours. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. No, I, I never thought about that, but I probably would want to as well. So yeah. 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 No, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're still, we're still figuring out like best, best practices and stuff, but usually the, um, the conversations like this, like in between questions will like, will cut out or unless it's like something like super important that somebody, you know, that, that they throw in their conversation. But, um, yeah, yeah like, so it'll, yeah. We'll, we'll make you look good, girl. <laughs> also, you mentioned that you're, you're, like, at least one side of your family is Norwegian. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to, because my, my grandma, my grandparents are Norwegian. Um, my mom was adopted. Yeah, and so we have lefse every year. Is that something you guys have? Yes. Yeah. My uncle and aunt love to make lefse. I'm not a particularly oh, big fan of it. I oh. love pancakes. Okay. Oh, um, I've never had that. <laughs> it's it, they're like crepes basically they're like super thin crepes okay yeah cool. yeah what do you know where in norway no i have no idea actually <laughs> okay. well, yeah. well you said there was a word that you wanted to ask her what was it a word or oh yeah that was the left oh it was left yeah. oh, okay. all right, all right. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> never mind yeah, yeah. noel asked beforehand because i i brought up somehow that oh because uh bridget was asking like oh like what where does like the name Kirsty come from? And it isn't because yeah, I wanted to make sure I pronounced your name right. Cause I was like, Kajersty? No, that's not right. I don't want to yeah. like embarrass myself. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Just pretend it's like an I. But some people <laughs> say Kirsty, which yeah. it's Kirsty, like more like a K U R, like Kirsty uh, okay. as opposed Kirstie. to Kirsty. Like I honestly don't hear the difference. It's more my wife gets mad when people mispronounce it Kirsty. <laughs> Um, I'm just so used to it because people call me like Kristen half the time, like growing up in school. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. 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 Definitely get that. Well, again, thank you for meeting us with us tonight. Um, we have like a two week turnaround. So, um, cause we have an inter interview actually coming out in two minutes. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so we'll, I don't know, I, I will, we'll email you or, or I'll message you saying like, Hey, interviews are up. Well, I, if you want to see it beforehand, I can send you. Um, if it's up on YouTube, I'll send you the YouTube link or on the drive, I'll send you the links just to check them out. But yeah, yeah. it'll be good. Awesome. Thank you. It was awesome meeting you. Thank you for doing the video. It's so great to meet you. Yeah. You're doing awesome things. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely going to go check out your Etsy like immediately. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs>
If you need to talk type one diabetic with anybody, I always need to type. Oh yeah, if you like, I've been a diabetic. I've only been a diabetic for like six or seven years now, but I grew up with my mom. She's been a type one my whole life. So if you're like newly diagnosed and you have any questions, got it all up here. (laughs) Well, yeah, I've only been for three years, so it's I still feel like a baby. Yeah, it's a learning curve, and I hope you don't have a lot of other comorbidities that go along with the diabetes. Not not so far. Um, Bridget, no, I'm gonna. If you guys could stay on the video afterwards, we'll. Okay. Okay. All right. Thank you. Bye. 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 It was so nice to meet you. You too.